Hey guys, welcome to the show. Uh, for those of you that are finding us for the first time, my name is Jonathan and my co-host name is Brad. Together, we are a pharmacist-CPA combination out of Richmond, Virginia. The show is dedicated to life optimization strategies, both focusing on the personal finance aspect, but also on general techniques that you can use to break the hamster wheel and reclaim your time and your life. It's a bi-weekly show on Mondays and Fridays. Mondays, we introduce a new topic or idea. Fridays is more or less a crowdsource show where we talk about our thoughts in the episode and bring in feedback from our community. Today, we have a fantastic episode for you. We are going to be speaking with Bryce and Christy from MillennialRevolution.com. Now, Christy is somewhat infamous for being Canada's youngest retiree. She used to live in one of the most expensive cities in Canada, but instead of drowning in debt, she rejected homeownership. What resulted was a seven-figure portfolio, which has allowed her and her husband to retire at 31 and travel the world. Their story has been featured on CBC, The Huffington Post, CNBC, BNN, Business Insider, and Yahoo Finance. To date, it is the most shared story in CBC history, and their viral video on CBC's On the Money has garnered over 4.5 million views. So with that introduction, welcome to the Choose FI radio podcast. You're listening to Choose FI radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. All right, guys. Well, we're super excited to have you on the podcast today. I would love to just hop right into this content and talk a little bit about our main topic today, which is going to be how to break the hamster wheel, specifically in Canada, I guess. But before we do that, we'd love to hear a little bit about your backstory. Uh, Christy, how did you discover FI and what really got you on this path? So even though I, I rant about ex- overpriced housing and all this housing stuff, initially, what's really funny is that I was actually trying to buy a house in Toronto because everybody was trying to do that. So we had actually built up a pretty massive down payment of um, half a million dollars. And that was actually towards a house. And what actually made me run away from housing, got me really scared, was that we went to a whole bunch of open houses and each one was actually worse than the last. <laughs> and then there was this one house down the street from us that looked like it was condemned. And there's been times in which we walk by and there's just random holes in the backyard. And there's signs talking about UFOs in the windows and just all sorts of creepy stuff. And then I figured, okay, nobody's going to buy this house. There's no way it's going to be on sale. There's no way. And then one day the it actually has a for sale sign. And then when I looked it up online on MLS, I found out that it's being it's being they're asking prices close to half a million dollars. <laughs> and that was I was like, this has got to be a joke. Like nobody's going to buy this for half a million dollars. Lo and behold, somebody actually bought it. Uh, it sold within a week. And then just within two months, they actually slapped some paint on it, fixed it up real quick, and then turned up profit by selling it for $800,000. At that point, I was like, run away. This housing market has completely gone crazy. And at the same time, my work was getting super stressful. I had coworkers who were getting blood clots. I had coworkers who collapsed and almost died at their desk. And at that point, I just decided I wanted out. There's no way I wanted to get into this housing market with this kind of turnover, like people just flipping houses and spending 
speculators all over the place. So what I did at that point was I looked around to see if there's any other way that I could get out of a horrible job and not buy a house. And that's when I discovered JL Collins. That's when I discovered uh, Money Mustache and his entire FI community, which I credit to basically saving me from going down that housing being trapped on the rat race. And what happened was that now that we've been retired for for two years, every time we come back home and talk to our friends, I can see ghost Christy there. Like what could have happened to me (laughs) if I had bought the house and if I had stayed in that horrible job? Because everybody is super stressed out all the time. They're waking up in the middle of the night panicking. And I know exactly what that was like because I used to be there. And I'm just really grateful that uh, to the FI community and to have discovered this path and not be in that situation because it sucks. Yeah. In particular, that point you made about going back and seeing Ghost Christie. There's so many different like specific points in time that I can think of where I look at this alternate version of myself that didn't make these choices. And I'm just so grateful that I did choose this path. And I'm not even at fire right now, but just the fact that I'm on this path is so rewarding in and of itself. Uh, Bryce, what about you? What did this, I mean, obviously you're on a very similar path with Christy, but what did this look like for you from your perspective? I mean, we're both engineers. So when we came up to this whole thing, I was looking at all of this stuff in terms of just numbers and the numbers just didn't make sense. People were going into so much debt and Christy was saying people were like, dropping almost dead at their office and stressing out. And they're all in service to this house. And that just fundamentally didn't make sense to me, especially since you could rent so much cheaper in the city. It just seemed like it was a cult. People did not consider the idea that it was okay to not buy a house. And when you make an assumption like that, you start doing weird things. It doesn't matter how much money I have, just corral it together from beg, borrow, steal a down payment from friends and family, and then just buy. Just go into massive amounts of debt and go into as much debt as you can. And that just didn't make any sense to me. So I introduced her to a lot of this FI stuff. And then we're just kind of like, oh, this is much better. Gee, would you rather be a chain to this house for the next 25 years? Or would you like to quit, come travel with me and then never have to work again? And that was a really easy sell. So my question for you, is, okay, you found this FI path after looking for houses, et cetera, but you had already saved $500,000 at that point. So that suggests to me that you guys already had a significant savings rate. Like talk me through the prior to FI psychology of where you were with your finances. So for myself, because I I grew up poor and basically rural China, I had to develop pretty frugal habits just out of necessity. Whereas Bryce is kind of like a normal person. He was just generally like middle class. So he, he didn't really, he wasn't really on board with the whole frugality aspect of it. And part of it was actually fear that we wouldn't be able to afford a house. So part of it was me trying to shovel as much money away as possible so that we could actually get the house. So that was actually driven partially by that and partially out of necessity because of growing up poor. When we had reached that target, I think at that point I had kind of converted Bryce a little bit towards being more like not just being like the regular person and be more efficient with our spending. I think another factor that added to that that helped us save that much money is that we're both engineers. We don't really care about aesthetics. We care more about the practical side of things. We're both pragmatists. So I think those are the factors that basically got us to that size of uh, portfolio. If I could just jump in here for a second, the pattern that we just described here, one person as an engineer or someone who's good at optimizing and the other person who had experience of some kind of poverty growing up, talking to a lot of the people as we get to know the other bloggers and this kind of stuff. It's a pattern I keep seeing over and over again, which is interesting. So one person had an experience growing up uh, with not a lot of money in childhood, and then that caused them to have this healthy fear of debt as well as a natural savings rate because you, again, they had no choice. Out of necessity. Out of no choice. And then the other person would then say, hey, that's a lot of money. Let's see what else we can do with it. Like I keep seeing that pattern over and over and over again, but it's it's an interesting pattern I keep seeing. Yeah, I agree completely. And I, I also find that there are certain 
definitely personality types and certain professions. So I've found in my experience that accountants, engineers, software developers, and military officers actually are, are the yep. four that kind of just spring to mind immediately that I find some commonality. I'm not sure what it is amongst our brains, but it, it seems to lend itself towards being open to Phi at least. The military officer one is interesting. The idea that, from what I can tell, they've seen so they've been in so many war zones and they've seen so many failed states that they just don't trust anyone except themselves. They've seen governments collapse. They've seen entire countries collapse and this kind of stuff. So that comes from a desire to be independent and a desire to be safe because they know how bad things can get when governments collapse. You know, I think that's a very interesting perspective, and I'm gonna play a little bit of devil's advocate here. I feel like maybe what you guys are describing are the early adopters of Phi. I think that as we define it more and as it becomes more mainstream, it does start to grab a much more diverse group of people, including people like me, the reluctant frugalist, people that realize that life is a bunch of choices and to get what they ultimately want, they need to make some sacrifices early on. I think that as we start to define the perimeters of this space more, People latch onto this concept for wildly different reasons, which is why what is your why becomes such a compelling conversation. Absolutely. And I think this is why the safe withdrawal rate, 4%, and then the um, expenses are different for different people. Like different people are going to have required different size of portfolio in order to live a comfortable life. Because my definition of a comfortable life is going to be different from someone else's. And what I want to do with my time after retirement is going to be different from someone else's as well. And that also follows the concept of what I like to quote from Jim, which he likes to call FU money, which is what's more important than retiring. It's the FU money. Because at that point, you can actually decide whether you want to continue working and have more of a lavish lifestyle, or you can actually quit and do your own thing. So everybody has their own version of FI and their own version and their own amount of FU money that would make them happy. And basically it's, you find your own path to FI and there's many, many paths. There isn't just one type. I tell you what, guys, I have a feeling we're going to need a sidebar for sidebar. I mean, this is a conversation that could go in so many different directions. Let's get turned into a multi-part series because there's a lot of stuff, especially after going to Chautauqua that we realized about the FI community. There is what I call level zero, which is running away from something, something that's you don't bad, like. right? Mm-hmm. And that appeals to a lot of people because I like to say there's like 80% of people hate their jobs and the other 20 percent are lying to themselves. So that's easy. That's always an easy sell. But then there's the level two or level one series of five, which is what do you do after that? What do you build after that? And that's the conversation that we started having a lot with Jim and Vicky and and, and all these kinds of people. And probably uh, we're going to be continuing having that conversation at the next Chautauqua and like this kind of stuff, because there's what FI does is it frees up all these people from having to worry about money. And then it frees up all these creative, skilled people and everyone's just kind of going, what can I build now? And that is a very, very interesting problem to solve. And again, a very constructive community versus the people that are still trapped in the money economy. The conversations are always just kind of like complain, complain, complain. How am I going to get out of it? I mean, like, what is the goal of everybody's career? It's the, it's to for it to eventually end. Everyone wants to get to retirement at 65. Well, for a lot of people, they didn't even realize that that was possible. Life is so hard. And what I keep telling people is it's only hard if you don't understand money. If you understand money, life is incredibly easy. If you don't it is just the most difficult thing to get out of bed every day, and it just never gets easier. But if you understand money, then it's life is easy. So guys, we have a lot of content that we want to cover with you, but I think before we go any farther, I should set this up by playing a voicemail that we got from David from Canada. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Brad. My name is David. Recent listener of you guys, I actually found you through the Radical Personal Finance podcast. And once I heard you guys speak on that show, I, I knew right away I wanted to listen to you and subscribe to your podcast right away. been listening for the past couple of weeks and uh, just listened to the Why of Phi episode 
today. Wanted to let you know it's just great. So I'm basically a pretty young father of three kids, married for about four years now, and I just working with my wife to get out of debt. We're here in Canada, so the housing rules for first-time home buyers were just changed, and it's not really a good climate to buy a home. We were always dreaming of buying our own place so we could invest money into it and eventually resell it later and uh, also pour some love into our home because the rental markets here can be a little bit rough. Uh, people don't really care about their rental homes. So uh, I wanted to ask what you guys think about that. I know you've touched on getting out of debt. We have some credit card debt. We've got some auto loans and fortunately some of that lifestyle creep that you guys have talked about. And I wanted to know what the best way to kind of recover and start working towards FI uh, is and what kind of steps I should take. I mean, we're already paying off our loan and paying off our debt as we speak, but ultimately dreaming of uh, FI and dreaming of not having that uh, weight on my shoulders every day. So yeah, just wanted to know your input on that. And also, uh, I was wondering if you guys could do some sort of analysis for me, give me some sort of answer. Uh, is it worth it just to keep renting, you know, from a FI perspective, or is it better off, am I better off going out and getting a 30-year mortgage, you know, and, and basically being stuck paying that off for years and years? Not really planning on moving my family anytime soon, but just thought I'd check in and see if you had any insight on that. And yeah, I wanted to give you some feedback. You guys are great. Love your show. It's been truly eye-opening for me and I'm really enjoying it and I can't wait to hear more. Thanks. All right, so David, first of all, thank you so much for the question and Christy and Bryce are gonna help us tackle this. We wanna take the approach and handle this a little bit more holistically and then hopefully by the end of this episode, really give you a great answer to this question. So I can hear the weight of that societal pressure bearing down on David in this question. I mean, it just comes through on the voicemail. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, guys? So coming from um, Asian background, that you need to buy a house is even more prevalent because it's gotten to a point where it's basically sacrilegious to not buy a house, like not just renting and not doing that. You get disowned <laughs> basically within within our culture. So for us, it was very, very difficult to stop buying a house and actually do what we're doing because that's the exact opposite advice that my parents have been giving me my whole life. And not having um, like a group of support around you and having everybody else saying that you're an idiot and all this FOMO, which is fear of missing out, um, which is a term that millennials use a lot these days, is even more difficult. So there's a lot of headwinds against us for making the decision to not buy a house. But one of the things that helped us a lot was actually just doing the math. Doing the math, that's why we, we like to say math shit up on our blog a lot, because it really comes down to looking at the numbers and seeing if it really makes sense. When I say do the math, I don't mean just going into a property, like a mortgage calculator, and then just looking at your monthly payment saying, yeah, I'm good to go. Yeah, this is the same as rent. I'm done. There are so many other costs with homeownership that nobody tells you, especially not the banks, especially not real estate agents, because when they actually get the money, once you make the transaction, they're, they're done, right? They've already made their money. They, they can walk away. Now it's your problem. So that's why I say that you need to be very careful when you actually do those calculations, because you need to add in the property taxes. You need to add in the maintenance, which actually could change from time to time. You don't really know what that is. Usually they recommend using one to two percent of the value of the property per year for the maintenance cost. In Toronto, we also have land transfer tax. And then on top of that, there's a lot of closing fees that you need to keep track of, as well as insurance. So there's all these additional costs that the mortgage calculator doesn't tell you. Real estate agents don't tell you that. Banks don't tell you that because once they make the sale, they're done. That's all up to you. And I haven't even gone through the cost of the mortgage itself and with interest rates going up. So I would say that in this case, my advice is definitely to do the math and make sure that that actually 
actually make sense for your situation. And don't get pulled into this fear of the fear of missing out is a very, very powerful, powerful feeling. And if you make decisions based on feeling rather than math, you will always end up having making a bad decision because you're making a bad decision emotionally and only based on the fact that you're missing out on something rather than the actual numbers. It's it's kind of funny because if you listen to the language that he used, he already kind of knows what is the right thing to do, but he is asking for some kind of like confirmation because I think he framed the question, should I still continue renting or or do you think I should get stuck with this 30 year payment? Yeah, he did say that. It's never good to be stuck in anything. So he kind of knows it's a bad idea but he's not completely sure, right? I mean, like that's why he's asking the question. And I think we can riff off the math that you guys have already done. I mean, if you wrote an article, would we be richer if we had bought a house? And it's kind of a retrospective look at the last three years, which is perfect because Canada's home market has been on an absolute tear over that period of time. So I think it would be very interesting to kind of pull some detail from that article. And maybe we can give those to David as just something that he can use looking forward to see how he wants to tackle this problem. Yeah, sure. I mean, like people were asking us if we had bought a house during that during the period of time in which we were investing, would we have come on ahead? And during that time, the average house in Toronto had gone up about $100,000 over the three years. So that sounds pretty good, right? But if you actually break down the number of costs that come into owning a home that don't happen when you own a portfolio, like for example, there's uh, just to sell the thing, first of all, you can't get that equity out unless you sell it. So to sell it, you have to pay a 5% real estate commission. That's So the case study that we were looking at was the average home uh, in 2012, and it had increased from half a million dollars. And in three years, it increased to about 622. So that's pretty good. That's like a seven, uh, seven, eight percent year over year gain. And uh, on the surface, that would seem like it's, you know, fantastic. Amazing, yeah. But what people don't realize is that a house has so many hidden costs to it that eat into your gain that are not present there for a portfolio. So, for example, if this person were to get the equity out and sell it, that $622,000 house, you have to pay a 5% real estate agent uh, commission. That's $31,000 right there. In Toronto, the, which is uh, where this scenario is, there is an additional municipal and provincial land transfer tax. That's additional $12,000 right there. Over the three years, there's profit property taxes that total up about $10,000. And we're not making these numbers up. There's These are actually calculated based on property tax calculators and and and, and stuff that the city provides. There's lawyer fees of uh, $1,000 each time to or $500 each time to buy and sell. So that's an additional $1,000. You have to get a home inspection. That's $500. There's home insurance over three years. That's about $100 a month or $36 hundred dollars over the three years. There's maintenance. They say you should set aside one to three percent of the price of your house for maintenance, stuff breaking, windows breaking and pipes bursting and this kind of stuff. So that's an additional fifteen thousand dollars over three years if you just take a conservative one percent. Then there's the utilities. That's an additional nine thousand dollars. So you add all this stuff up and the total cost of just conservative cost of just owning that damn house over the three years was about eighty eight thousand dollars. So that one hundred and twenty five thousand dollar gain that everyone thought they did, most of it got eaten up by these additional costs. No one ever talks about that kind of stuff. So, I mean, like it is a very, very disingenuous kind of I call it funny real estate math. Whenever a person who is like a real estate person comes on our blog and starts arguing, it's so easy to kind of poke all these holes in this kind of stuff. And then when you do it, you realize that it is always a good idea from a real estate agent's perspective to buy and because they get to make money off of it. They don't particularly care whether you make money off of it, but they get to make money off of it. <laughs> yeah. Never ask a barber if you need a haircut. <laughs> this is incredible, guys. Like that math is is mind blowing. And frankly, this is a blind spot, even in my own mind. So to me, just right out the gate, those numbers sound shockingly big. I mean, you have this $500,000 house, 
three years later, it's worth $622,000 that you just made 122 grand. And you're sitting there thinking, how could I lose in a housing market like this? The numbers you just spit out, those, those numbers are remarkably real, right? I mean, that's not just pulled out of thin air. There's some research behind it. Those are reasonable numbers. That's not a straw man. And $88,000 of that profit was just eaten up in these behind the scenes fees that you just don't realize that you're incurring. And that's during three straight years of 8% gains. So if you're anything less than that, you're underwater really easily. And that's not even including the fact that many people feel the need that they need to stage their house, that they need to do these beautiful upgrades, that they need to refurnish the kitchen countertops because HGTV tells you that you need to make these upgrades before you try to sell the house. All that goes out the window. So I just have to sit back and say that, that I am shocked at how bleak that math really is. Yeah, us too, to be honest. Uh, we, we went thought into it would, this, would go in pretty, it would come out pretty balanced. Yeah, we no. thought it would be like our portfolio rampage ahead 78% uh, year over year during that time. The house did at the same time. Let's see how far. And we didn't expect it to be that far behind. And uh, again, you know, no one ever talks about that. A house is just not an investment. It is a place to live. And anytime you, anyone says, oh, it's a great investment, they're trying to sell you something. So housing is a really sneaky kind of thing in that everybody seems to think that it's always a good move. But if you break down the math behind it, it's shocking how bad it is as an investment. Now, now, I don't want to cheat people with that light bulb moment, but the key here is that buzzword investment. Yeah. So what strikes me with the math actually is the appreciation. So this, in your example, your hypothetical, it went up about $125,000 over three years. So if, if you told just someone off the street that their house went from 500 to 622, they'd be doing absolute backflips. That's a huge windfall, right? But what was most interesting to me actually was that you said it's a 7.8% year over year gain. And that to me, it actually illustrates the value of compounding in the stock market, interestingly enough. So we talk about compounding and the rule of 72 here. People don't take a look at long enough timeframes. So if you had $500,000 invested in the stock market, and theoretically, it grew on average 8%. And that's kind of the general number we use here at Chooseify. You would anticipate that 500000 to double after nine years, right? Because that's the rule of 72. You take right. 72 divided by the percent return, and that gets you the number of years. So in this case, nine years. So you would expect that 500000 to go to a million dollars in nine years. Now, I don't know about you, but no housing market I've ever been in do I see housing prices double in nine years. So almost by definition, somebody's looking at this and saying, wow, $125,000. But that's only 7.8% return, which is about what we'd expect in the stock market, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. And another thing that I did forgot to mention here was that this analysis was done assuming that you just took that amount of money in cash. Like you bought a half a million dollar house with cash. There is no mortgage in this thing. As soon as there's a mortgage, this seven, this 8% year over year gain becomes negative. Yeah, that's, that is absolutely astounding. So everyone needs to do the math. And, and I think that that's my next question for you guys is, so David calls in and like you said, he is kind of alluding to the fact that, that he knows it's not a good idea to get quote unquote stuck with this, right? But how would he do the math? So you guys show the real estate commissions and all this stuff, but, but how would someone just who's trying their best to figure this out without needing a PhD in, in mathematics, like how would they compare 
rent to home ownership? Like where, where does it make sense, I guess, to buy a home? Is there an instance, like how do you walk people through that math? Okay. Um, so for deciding to buy a home, we usually like to use the 1% rule. I think Paula Pant has mentioned this on her blog before on uh, affordanything.com. So basically the rent should be 1% of like the monthly rent should be 1% of the cost of the house. And she actually breaks down the math to say, because she is a real estate investor. So she has a lot of experience in this. And she actually breaks down the math to compare it with the stock market and the opportunity cost that you would lose if you were putting everything into a home and you were we're incurring all these costs. And so that is the rule of thumb that we like to use, the 1% rule. So for example, if you're if you if you can rent a place for $1000 and you're thinking about buying, really you should be only looking to see to to buy a place for $100,000. So what that rule does is it, it forces you to have a really conservative view of how much home is a good deal. And what that does is it compares it to how much you could afford to live there as rent. So that's the rule that she uses to, to buy houses. And, and she actually is actually able to make money on housing because she only looks at properties that she can acquire for really, really cheap. You know, I think that's the difference in the FI community and the difference in this conversation. It's all about how you're framing it. And it's that word investment. When you're talking about purchasing a home, if you're saying my home is a great investment, no, it's very likely that your home is a garbage investment. It could be a great place to live. It could be a great choice for you for providing a place for your family and it could allow for a lifestyle that you want to have. But I think the FI community latches onto the idea of, do you really understand what the word investment means? Because obviously based on the numbers you just showed, that is not a, a great choice for you to put your money as opposed to low cost index funds, which I think that's generally where you guys have landed as well, right? Yeah, correct. So Bryce, let's go ahead and take a few minutes and talk about how leverage enters in this picture, because I think we kind of glossed over that. How does that affect the numbers? In this scenario, when you have a mortgage, there's now interest that you are paying out and interest and, and people keep saying, oh, rent is throwing money away. Well, interest is throwing money away. So every uh, dollar that you spend towards interest, that just goes to make the bank richer. So when you add leverage into this kind of thing, it increases the cost of, of owning this thing because now you're paying interest to the bank as well as in Canada, there's CMHC fees, which are insurance premiums that you have to pay if you don't have a big down payment. I think in the States it's called FHA or something like that. Uh, PMI. So, PMI. Okay, cool. So that adds a whole other kind of level of cost to that thing. And the reason why people still see leverage as a good thing is they look at how much money they put as a down payment and then they say, and, and then they build in some wacko assumptions about how the home was going to appreciate by a certain percentage. And then they say, and then they compare that to the amount of money they put down and say, wow, look how much money I put down. Without it, considering any cost, without realizing that, actually, I think JL Collins put this best, which is if you are paying a mortgage, you are renting someone else's money. You are renting their money, basically. So the fact that people just look at how much money gets made and then just use the amount of money that they put down on the down payment and say, oh, look, I made a $400,000 profit. That's real estate math. You're not considering any of the cost and you're not considering how much money you're paying into the mortgage. All that has been totally disregarded, right? It's like starting a business and saying, I make a million dollars a year. Well, I'm, how much are you spending? Oh, the expenses don't matter. Let's just look at the um, amount of money that I'm making. And then they're actually spending $2 million. So you're actually in the, in the hole. Right. You can't just look at one side of the equation and ignore all your expenses. Leverage always makes sense when the underlying asset is going up forever. But as you guys know, housing does not go up forever. And when it comes down, it's just as easy to go underwater. And then I think people in Canada are now understanding how scary that is now because it is starting to happen where it doesn't take a lot of housing price movement in that, on the downside to turn your jumbo mortgage into like a like an anvil that just you can't get out of. Because once you're underwater on the mortgage, you can't even sell the house to get out of it. You have to come up 
up with a check just to get back to zero. So leverage and going into debt, people have been strangely comfortable with it. And I think the big difference between us and a lot of the FI people is we don't trust debt. And that's kind of why we never went into it. And that's kind of why we were able to do this FI thing. So we've decided that your home is not a great investment. I think that Brad and I have come to a similar conclusion, even though I should state for the record that both of us are homeowners. I certainly don't think that we view it as an investment vehicle. And I think that's the asterisk that really needs to be communicated in this episode. I am curious though, since you guys obviously are taking care of your living expenses through rent. Uh, what are what vehicles are you investing in? Um, Low-cost index funds, the ones run by Vanguard and just uh, investing in, for us, the TSX, which is the Toronto Stock Exchange, the, uh, the S&P 500, as well as the European uh, EAFE index. So what we did was we built a portfolio around back then when we had half a million, you know, kind of dollars. And we were we built it so that it was a 60-40 split. So 60% equities, 40% fixed income. Jim would call me a giant wuss for doing that, but that's what we did. And what what really ha- helped for that, when the stock market crashed and everything, like all the equity stuff was going down, the fixed income stuff actually kind of went up. And what this approach tells you is that when your target allocation, for example, 60-40, starts to get out of whack, it tells you what to do. So, it, so if it goes down to 50-50, it tells you that you're supposed to sell off some bonds and then buy into equity. And during the 2008 and 2009 crash, this was telling me to throw as much money as you can into a stock market that was plummeting, which is extremely counterintuitive to say the least. And it was scary as hell, to be completely honest with you. But because we did that, we kept picking up units as the stock market was crashing. And then when it eventually rebounded, we were able to participate in the upside stronger than we participated in the downside. And as a result, within a year of 2008, so late 2009, we had managed to recover all the money that we lost in, in the stock market crash. And that's, I think, something that not even most Wall Street people were able to claim. We didn't actually lose money in the stock market crash. That's how powerful index investing is. Yeah, that's remarkable. And that shows the power of having a savings rate and living below your means and being able to just dump money into the stock market in good times and bad, right? You're still buying the underlying assets, right? If you buy the S&P 500 or VTSAX, you're buying every company, a little piece of every company in that index. And it's still the same company, regardless of whether the stock market had a crash or not. And you're buying it on a 50 to 90% sale, right? What a, depending on how big the crash was. So I think that's an important point for people to remember. I'm curious how often you rebalance your portfolio and also like how you actually came up with that 60-40 split. Like you said, Jim might call you a wuss because he would probably suggest you should be in 100% equities based on your age. So I'm curious where you came up with that. Um, it was just uh, just kind of reading finance books and this kind of stuff. I mean, like 100-0 was just too aggressive for us. Uh, so we were kind of figuring somewhere between 75-25, and then we kind of set of set on 60-40. It was, well, you know, we, we did a lot of analysis as to how much volatility we were willing to accept, and then 60-40 just kind of like Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold. It was just, it was just right for us. I think it makes sense for people in the accumulation phase to be at 100. But now that we're actually retired, 60-40 works well for us, especially since we can actually live on partially the dividends that come out of that portfolio as well. So it, it suits our comfort level in terms of risk. Yeah. At the time, we had just started investing. So we were a little bit still kind of nervous about it. So 60-40 was kind of our waiting, our t- uh, dipping our toe into the water. The intent was, I think, as we got more comfortable with how the stock market works to kind of move closer to uh, 75, 80, like increase our equity exposure as we got more comfortable with it. And then the stock market crash happened. Then we were really, really glad that we didn't do that at the time. And then after we retired, we just stuck with that uh, allocation. 
So what's really cool about this is that with that first tenant, that your home is a poor investment, channeling your all of your extra income to a good investment vehicle, which we agree, you're in very friendly company, that low cost index investing is the way to go. You've now bought your freedom. And I think the overarching premise is that buy your freedom, rent the rest, right guys? Exactly. So what that has allowed us to do is actually travel the world, which it has always been one of my dreams because growing up poor, we didn't really have any vacations. That was a complete luxury. We didn't have any money for that. So we actually discovered after we quit that it's less expensive to travel the world than it is to live in Toronto. <laughs> a lot less expensive. The first year that we travel the world, we split our time between Western Europe, Central Europe and Southeast Asia. So we went to places, expensive places like the UK. We spent a month there. We went to Denmark, which is probably the most expensive place we went to, actually Switzerland as well. And then um, when it got too cold in November, we went to Southeast Asia and then hung around Singapore, Thailand and Malaysia and Vietnam. And because that cost balanced out, the places, the cost of living in Southeast Asia is ridiculously low. We only spent $40,000 traveling the world in one year. And in Toronto, you could easily spend sixty to 80000 so it was it was a no brainer. It was like, why would I stay here and buy a house and be miserable when we can travel the world for a lot less and be happy? And in Thailand, you can you can get massages for twelve dollars and you can get a meal easily for under five dollars. So it was it was no brainer. Yeah. So when when we came back and we added all this stuff up and we kind of went, how much did we spend? Oh, forty thousand dollars. Well, when we retired, we our four percent number was forty thousand dollars. We had a million dollar portfolio and four percent that is forty thousand dollars. So we kind of went holy crap, we could just do that forever. So as soon as we landed, we just kind of turned around and did it again. <laughs> and, and what ended up, ended up happening is as we got better at traveling and we got better at realizing what's a high cost place, what's a low cost place, how to time average your time between the two between the countries to lower your cost, our spending has actually gone down. This year, which is our second year of traveling, I think we're coming in at around $30,000 of how much we actually spent traveling, like again, just around the world, including Europe and the UK and all those kind of places. And because we built our retirement assumptions with a 40 thousand dollar yearly spend because we're now spending thirty thousand dollars the more we travel the more money we make we're getting paid ten thousand dollars a year to travel the world that's insane isn't it that is remarkable and that's a total reframing so to everybody else to the watching world the outside the fight community you guys are spending forty thousand dollars a year on travel are you crazy who does that that's insane in the fi community your life costs eighty thousand dollars a year because you refuse to be flexible we embrace flexibility and as a result of that our life only costs forty thousand dollars a year and we can pick up and follow the weather to the best possible place to be at any given month of the year in any given country of the world and at the end of the year, just by looking at our personal capital account, we, we see that we got paid 10 grand to, to do this, to embrace this lifestyle. And you guys aren't living in a little hut either. No, they're like to give you an example how of what the cost of living is like in places around the world that people haven't been to. People are so used to living in Toronto and then they're paying their like whatever, $1,500, $1,800 a month rent. We go to Thailand and it's a brand new condo, a new build. It has a swimming pool. It has a sauna. It's walking distance to everything. And it only cost us $575 a month or maybe like four, what, 450 US. It's just 
the cost of living is unbelievable. Um, we even found recently that we went to Poland, so in um, Central Europe. It was pretty similar to the cost of Southeast Asia, but really everything was like high standard of living. Everything was super nice as well. We just, out of curiosity, looked for a place because we stayed there for an Airbnb and it was only around $45 a night. Uh, we wanted to see what a long-term rental would cost. And they were only around, uh, again, within the 600 to 800 Canadian Canadian dollar range, right? Which is what, like 500 to 650, 700 US dollars a month. And these are there's, these are nice modern condos that are very close to the center of town. So it really is amazing when you start traveling for you to realize how much value you can get out of different places that you've never been to that people don't know about. And meanwhile, we come back home and everyone is stressed out. They're trying to pay the mortgage. Their cost of living is multiple times what ours is, but they're staying in one place. They're working every day. They don't even get to enjoy their house because they're working so much overtime. Meanwhile, our biggest decision is, hey, do you, do you want to go like to Japan next year or do you want to go back to Europe? Like that's literally the decision that we're wrestling with right now. So it's a really different lifestyle. And then they look at us and be like, well, you guys are crazy. And I'm just kind of like, you know, I can show you how to do it. All these problems that you have are self-imposed, but it's that mental block that they kind of say, well, I have to do this because I have to own a house. Otherwise, that'd be insane. And I'm like, all right, dude, you do you. We're going to do our thing off to Europe, you know? Yeah. And that's the definition of the hamster wheel. They're just paying for these things that they don't get to use because they have to work all the time. That's just absurdity of the highest order. And I'm curious, Bryce, has anybody ever taken you up on it? Has anybody ever said, wow, that's interesting. Can you teach me how? Surprisingly, in our like actual group of friends, some people are trying to, to learn from it as well. But for the most part, most of our friends back here are still like, oh, I wish I could do what you do. And it's like, you can, right? And then they kind of go, no, I can't. Back to the hamster wheel. It's just bizarre. But in terms of people that we meet in the FI community, people who write into our blog who are actually curious about this kind of stuff, we'll break down their numbers and be like, here is your pathway to do this kind of stuff. And they go, oh, well, that wasn't so hard. No, it's not that hard. That's what we keep trying to tell people. We're not doing anything crazy here. We didn't buy Apple stock at $2. We didn't start a billion dollar business from in our, in our garage. All we did was we made slightly different choices, choices that are accessible to you. And the biggest mental block that people have is that, oh, I have to own a house. And I'm just like, when you break that assumption, all the rest of life becomes really, really, really easy. But they just don't want to do that. And I'm just kind of like, okay, fine. If that's what makes you happy, great. But they're not happy. They complain incessantly about how expensive everything is here. And I'm just kind of like, you can just come with us. And then they're like, no, it's it's frustrating. But you know what? There's only so much you can do by lecturing somebody. When If they are actually curious and they actually want to come with, we're always willing to help. But we have to let them come to us first. I think I found that over and over again. I think Brad's had a little bit more success with his, you know, inner circle, if you will, with the, I think he presents with a little more strategy. I have found it's better when other people come to me, they have to find this concept on their own and then I can steer them. I can shorten that path for them, but you have to have that light bulb moment on your own. And then when you're primed for it, then yeah, you can, you can feed them that information, but otherwise it's just brick wall, man. Yeah, absolutely. And to that point, even before we quit, like we knew we had enough, we did all the numbers, we got people to vet the numbers in the FI community. But even when it came time to tr pull the trigger, like I was terrified, no matter how many people, how many I've seen JL Collins do it, I've seen MMM do it, it didn't matter how many other people had already done it, I was still terrified, right? So you really have to be 
the person who's in the driver's seat and then decide that that's what you want to do and then get comfortable with it over time. And then after two years, like the, the longer we stay retired, the more confident we get. And really right now I'm looking back, I'm like, why was I so terrified? It's really not that scary at all. But really the, the person has to make the decision themselves. They have to be the one in the driver's seat. You you can't steer them in the direction that you want to. You want to. They will be scared because we've all been indoctrinated into thinking that we have to live this life. Like we have to run the hamster wheel. And if we get off, we're going to die. <laughs> and no, <laughs> it's actually amazing. But you really have to find out yourself. It doesn't matter how many other people have done it before. So I'm curious, guys, you guys have traveled all around the world. You said you've continually gotten better at this. What tools or systems or practical advice could you give to people that are interested in this journey and not specifically with the index investing, but more just the idea of renting your life out, you know, in different countries. What are these tools that you found that have been very effective look like? Is it Airbnb? I mean, what, what could you recommend to people? How would they get started with this geo arbitrage that truly is international? Airbnb has been life-changing, really. We basically live on Airbnb. So what we found is that it helps you cook. Like you have a kitchen and you have laundry. And that already saves you a ridiculous amount of money. And not only that, it helps you be healthier because you're not eating out all the time. On top of that, when we meet Airbnb hosts, it's basically local people, right? So they can give you all these secrets of, you know, you should stay in this area and this area makes more sense and this other area is less crowded, it's less expensive. So then you actually start learning from the locals where are the best places to travel to? Like, where do I book flights? What are some discount sites I can use to book buses and things like that? So Airbnb has been instrumental in helping us save money while traveling. Another thing we like to do is travel hack. So that's basically um, sign up for credit cards and they give you frequent flyer miles when you sign up and then you can use that towards flights. We also use a lot of budget airlines in Europe. For example, Ryanair, EasyJet, Welling is the one we went on recently. And uh, as well as taking buses, um, I I think the, the bus company was called uh, Megabus. We actually traveled from Amsterdam to Belgium and it cost us two pounds. That's it. I'm like, you guys are losing money driving us from uh, Amsterdam to Belgium. I don't know how they do it, but Megabus is, is huge in uh, Europe for saving money. I bet it was a hybrid. Yeah, could be. <laughs> I, my, my, theory, my theory was there was like a couple pounds of cocaine in the trunk and, the, and we were just using us as cover. But, you know, I, I didn't ask. So. We're, we're not going to ask any questions. I was like, yeah, you don't ask questions like that. But, <laughs> but yeah, like in, in Europe, uh, moving around is like costs next to nothing because of budget airlines and budget uh, bus companies. We don't actually have those kinds of things in North America. And I was kind of I was really surprised. We flew from Slovakia to to Berlin and it was it cost like $20. Like it's it's almost like a bus ticket, but it's a plane. So you kind of realize that. North America is one of the most expensive places in the world to live, but the rest of the world is not like that. Yeah, those budget airlines are wonderful. I, I remember flying between Dublin and I think Brussels, Belgium, and I, I think it was one pound. So it was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. It's under yeah. $2 to fly one way. So I, I'm curious on a real tactical level. So when you move to a new city, let's say you're moving to Budapest for a month or two, you go through Airbnb. Are you looking for long-term rentals or are you basically going to do a night-by-night -night thing until you have a sense of where in the city specifically you want to live? And then also, like, are there ways to save money through Airbnb once you've found the place you want to live for X number of weeks or months? Uh, we generally like to stay for about a week. Uh, initially because we, we're doing more of a long-term travel. I don't like to move around every couple of days. That's just kind of tiring. Airbnb, a lot of hosts actually give you 20% off or some discount when you book for a week as opposed to a couple of days. I've booked places in which it was actually cheaper to book for the entire week than book for five days. 
And I'm like, okay, well, I can just throw away those two days. Like, why would I not do that? Um, when we are in Southeast Asia, we tend to book out for about a month in Thailand because you get massive discounts as a result of that as well. The first time that we were traveling, we actually weren't as efficient because we didn't know which places to go in Europe. So we actually spent a lot of time in Western Europe when there was actually way better stuff in Central Europe that I didn't know about. And there was way better stuff in Southeast Asia. So I think initially it was just kind of get in there, stay there a week, someplace maybe stay there for five days, check it out and see if that's a place that really kind of jives with our, our lifestyle and our, our interests. And if we actually like it, we'll end up staying longer. One of the reasons why we like Europe so much is it's so easy to switch countries if you don't like the one that you're currently in. It's like, oh, okay, I'll just take a Ryanair flight or I'll just take a bus and then go to another place. And uh, for example, when we were in UK, the cost was was quite high and the weather wasn't great. So um, we ended up going to Belgium. And then after that, we went to Germany. And then Germany, the cost was a lot lower and uh, we enjoyed that a bit, a lot more. And then we went to Greece and we absolutely loved it. And then Singapore was amazing for food as well. So generally, I, we like to get in, check it out. And if we don't like it, just go somewhere else. And uh, after we've done that for a while, we kind of start realizing like the tricks and where people stay. So here's an example. Uh, we were just in London and you figure, okay, you fly into London, it's going to be expensive because you, you need a hotel in downtown London or something like that. None of the locals actually stay in downtown London. There is this city between Gawick Airport and London called East Croydon. Nobody knows about East Croydon it's cause, because it's like a suburb of London, but it's one train ride and you go right down to London Victoria Station for like five pounds. But because nobody knows about it, all of the rentals, we stayed in like just a two-stop train ride away from downtown London for 60, 50 uh, US dollars a night. And uh, when we went into, uh, when we found the Airbnb and we checked into the place, the host was like, ah, you figured out the secret that we know, right? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> so you, you, you figured out these kind of weird price anomalies that you wouldn't normally see if you're in Europe. And after a period of traveling, you know all this kind of stuff in your head and then you can take advantage of it by booking longer periods of time in low-cost areas that still gets you all of the cool stuff that you would see from a, like from living in downtown London. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's a, that's a huge advantage of doing long-term travel because when you're when we were on vacation, we, we didn't have time to find out any of this stuff because we just get like a packaged you know, packaged deal for the two weeks, right? And then that's not in the travel agency's interest to give you the best value. They just, you know, throw everything in there and whatever it makes them money, they'll just sell you a package, right? So that's one of the things we discover that when you actually can stay there longer and then talk to the locals and figure these things out, you can actually optimize. That's awesome, guys. There's like so much information there. It's unfortunate that you guys don't have like a blog or something that you could document all these secrets of world travel on. <laughs> I know <laughs> there's a, there is a lot of information and yeah, it's uh, the challenge is almost in trying to teach someone this, uh, this stuff is not to blast them with everything all at once. It's, yeah. it's, it's like you have to feed bits of information in bite sized pieces and then uh, allow them time to digest it and then wait for them to come back a, a little bit. So I'm trying not to blast too much. And so like, like even right now, I'm trying to hold back as to, as to whatever, because no. otherwise it'd be, <laughs> it'll be too much information. I'll be too confusing, right? <laughs> this is awesome though, guys. They're like I wasn't expecting to get as deep into the geo arbitrage and these tips are very valuable. I mean, what's really cool about this community is that our audiences respectively will be able to do this stuff. And if they're going from scratch, this is a lever that they can pull within five years. And even if they're not at full fi, you get to make these choices once you've broken the hamster wheel. And it doesn't take 25 times your annual expenses to break the hamster wheel. It, it is just making a few decisions like not burying yourself in debt to get the mortgage, like not paying for the overpriced cell phones and the two brand new cars in the driveway. It's just making these slightly more optimized choices that gives you the space between your expenses and your savings. And 
that allows you to get to do this creative stuff. And then once you can make these creative choices, you get to do what Bryce was talking about. What's that next bite-sized challenge that I can tackle? And I'm excited to see this community free itself from their immediate geographic location and actually get a chance to see all these really cool things that are out there for them to explore. It turns this game of life into a really cool puzzle and you get to figure out which aspect you want to work on next. Yeah. The, the One of the biggest things about travel is that you start realizing if you stay in one city, everyone just thinks that there's only one place to live and that's in the currency that they're living in. When you start moving into other cities, when you start, especially when you start moving into other countries, you start to realize that other countries do things in very different ways. The assumptions that you had before were not uh, not universal. So for example, we have a lot of American readers. We actually have, that's the biggest demographic that we have, despite the fact that we're Canadian. And one of the biggest things that they worry about is, is, is health insurance and health costs. And you go into a hospital and it's, it's, all of a sudden you're, you have $10,000 of medical debt. And that's a really big concern for, for them. So they kind of go, I'll never be able to retire because of that. And then when you realize that, by the way, no one else in the world are medical costs that high. When we were doing the Chautauqua and someone asked us this question, they were like, what do you do about that? And then I was like, well, I had to get my teeth cleaned uh, at some point in Mexico and I had to go to a doctor in Thailand. I had to do an EKG at some point and it cost me, you know, 30 bucks for the cleaning and $40 for the EKG. And I could see the American uh, people in the audience just glare at each other and they're like, what the hell? And I'm just kind of like, yeah. Like medical costs, no one else in the world actually worries about it to the extent that you guys do. But if you were to live in other countries, like that worry is just gone. You have like, yeah, yeah, there is insurance, but it's not nearly as expensive as as it is for you guys when you are living in, in the U.S. because your medical expenses are so high. You don't realize this kind of stuff until you start traveling. And then you start to say, oh, this other country, this is better than where I'm currently living. And this other country, this is actually better. And then you start to realize, oh, hey, there's actually other ways to live besides just where I grew up, right? And Bryce, that speaks to just expanding your horizons through travel, right? Like that's a a much larger point that your little myopic look on the world is gone when you travel to in one year, like you guys do to many, many different countries. You're seeing all different cultures and people and realizing that just people are people no matter where they are, no matter where they came from. So I think that's like an important point for people to remember is this really does expand your horizons. So I just wanted to put a bow on that for sure. Yeah, there's a, there's a story that I like to talk tell people. Like we were we were going to Mexico earlier this year, and all of our friends and family is like, "Oh God, you're going to get killed, right? Because it's so dangerous in Mexico." And all they hear about in the news are people getting like killed and kidnapped and like this kind of stuff. But when we actually went into Mexico, it was totally fine. We were staying with uh, an Airbnb host in Cancun. The guy was a, a scuba diver instructor, and we were talking to him about because we got our patty in Thailand. How about how great you can if you're a scuba diving instructor, you can travel around the world and pick up jobs all over the place, and then you can kind of pay for it as you go. And then we were talking about how much we enjoyed our time in Thailand. And then he said, oh, gee, Thailand, I hear it's dangerous. And I was like, seriously? Like, everybody thinks their city that they live in is the only safe place in the entire world and everywhere else is Dragons Be Here. That attitude is just prevalent everywhere. And then when you realize that, hey, they think Thailand's dangerous, we think Mexico's dangerous. And all that is just kind of like putting a blinders on your face. Hey, guys, I'm curious. So you said you started out with a $40,000 yearly expense with travel, and then you've knocked it down to $30,000. For a listener out there saying, I wonder if I lived in one of these ultra low expense places like Thailand without giving up on quality of life, because Chris, you're describing massages and four course dinners for a couple dollars. Like how much could could you reasonably live on in one year in Thailand while still living like a, a really nice life? 
Oh man, for an individual, you could live on fifteen thousand to twenty thousand U.S. dollars and be extremely happy in Thailand. The city that we visited that we really enjoyed uh, is called Chiang Mai. That's the second largest city in Thailand, and basically you could rent a condo with a swimming pool and a sauna for. About four hundred to four hundred and fifty U.S. dollars a month, and probably less, because when we were there, we just found the first one that we came across. If you actually knew the locals and optimized, you could probably get it down even lower. The food would not cost you more than I would say fifteen U.S. dollars a day. Fifteen, probably ten to fifteen U.S. dollars a day. You could get massages. Uh, for twelve dollars for an hour, including tip. There's all sorts of free activities you could do in the city as well because they have a, a mountain that you could hike up. And basically, there's just food everywhere. And the condo that we stayed in didn't even have a kitchen because it was just cheaper to go out to eat because it was just the same as how much you would spend cooking in in other places. And the food was amazing. So one of our favorite places to eat was this place that served seafood. And they literally served the food on a table. And the unit of measurement was a table of seafood. It's like, would you like half a table, a full table, a double double table? The table, and then they dump the seafood that you select with the sauce. And then they give you these um, plastic gloves and you just eat it. You just eat it straight off the table. Wow. Oh, man, talking about this is making me want to go back to Chiang Mai. I think we need to... <laughs> yeah, and the, and the bill uh, for that was uh, 16 Canadian dollars. So that's like, like 12 US dollars. Yeah. Yeah, for a table of seafood. Yeah, for a table full of seafood. For the, for the, for the, two, the of two of us. For the two of us. And there's even cheaper places. Like, I mean, like, uh, we're in Cambodia... And in a, in a city called Snookville, everything there is on the U.S. dollar, but everything there is dirt cheap. I mean, you can get a beer for 50 cents. You can rent a room in a hotel for $100 a month, U.S. dollars. And there's actually a community of expats, like uh, I think they were like British and Canadian expats that figured that all kind of were passing through Cambodia for one reason or another and just being like, holy crap, I could live here for I could live here for next to nothing. So there's like a there's like an enclaves of Canadians and Americans and, and Australians in Snookville in Cambodia who have all figured out the secret that it's just kind of like with just the money in my savings account now, I could live here forever based on the interest and this kind of stuff, right? So it's a really, like you really start to learn how there are other ways to live out there and it's really not that expensive. Yeah, we actually met this couple in Vietnam who were from Australia and they said that when they were in Australia, they were struggling because the guy was had a very stressful job in IT and he had to have like open heart surgery because he almost died from just the panic attacks and the stress. And he said that he needed to make a change. So while they were taking a, a year off to travel, they discovered um, Vietnam and it was always his dream to actually open a, a massage, like a spa in a foreign country. And they really liked Vietnam. So they they met some locals and researched how to actually open a spa. Uh, while we were there, his spa actually basically rocketed to the top 10 of that, that city, which was Nitrong. And um, they said that they basically have settled in Vietnam running their business. And she started an orphanage that saves like 22 local kids there. And they are not planning to go back to Australia. And whenever their friends and family ask them, like, when are you coming home? Their answer is, this is home. Like we could either go back to Australia and struggle and not be ahead, or we could be here and already be ahead and living our dreams. So we met a lot of expats as we were going to Southeast Asia. And it was really obvious because you could live a luxurious life for 20,000 US dollars a year easily. You guys are going to get blacklisted from this expat community for sharing all their secrets. I know. We totally are. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We're, we're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brad has this mental list that I've adopted as well of for a food budget, a reasonable price is $2 per person per meal. But that is taking into account that you are going to be making this at home 
you know, you're not eating out. Like your entire budget that you just described involved less than $2 per person per meal in some cases. And it was totally eating out and not just eating out, but filling up the entire table with food. Eating out every day. That, that's what it was like in Thailand. And to recap, we were making money while we were stuffing our faces of seafood. Like it's just, I keep trying to tell people, this is possible. I can show you how, and they just don't believe me. But it's, we reveal on the blog and it's all true. I'm not making stuff up here. Yeah. And it's just challenging that orthodoxy, right? Everybody has these preconceived notions that to live the X dream, right? The American dream, the Canadian dream, you have to buy a house and live in the suburbs and have two cars and go on expensive vacations every single year. Well, if you're just a little more optimized, you can save a significant amount of your money. I mean, you guys retired at right around 30, right? I mean, you couldn't, how long could you have worked for? Eight years, something like that? Yeah, yeah, nine years. We retired at about 31. 31. Yeah. That's not impossible. It doesn't matter if you started at 22. You know, that's fine. That would be all well and good. But anybody listening to this can start today, right? You can make these changes and just challenge those hangups, challenge the orthodoxy and make a change. And who knows, nine or 10 years from now, you could be traveling with Christy and Bryce somewhere throughout the world. Like it sounds silly, but it is extremely possible. And we're trying our best here to get that through to you. It is doable. You just have to take action. Yeah, that's what we emphasize as well. We did not, and repeat, not hit any home runs. We did not buy Apple at $2. We did not start up a, like Snapchat or something like that. We just, we, we took some, I think some pretty pedestrian moves of, uh, I don't think I'm going to buy a house. I'm just going to keep renting. And and saving money in investment accounts. And as a result, we set a record in Canada for youngest retiree, but we didn't even do anything heroic. Everyone could do this. It's really cool. And I think what you guys have done is continue to challenge the norms that society tells you you have to do. And in particular, I see your focus being on this idea, first of all, that you have to get a STEM job. You have to buy the house. You need to be the loyal employee that works in the same career for 40 years. And then at some point down the road, you can retire in the United States with social security or with your pension in Canada or some cases in the United States. And you guys have just flipped that on its head and everything gets more interesting. And so I'm curious, one, going back to our initial question of David, who's in this position, what would your advice be for him and for his growing family? You know, he's working on paying down these debts. He's just discovered the FI community. Do you have any general thoughts or feedback that you would want to pass? on to him? Well, the solution for getting out of debt is, is never take on more debt. So continue paying off debt and learn about how to invest, learn how to use low cost index funds, learn how to project how far you are from retirement and do that. Money isn't complicated, but you do have to learn about it. You, you don't get that knowledge by default. So use, use the blogs like ours, use your podcast, keep learning and soaking in information and you'll eventually be able to figure it out. And if he wants more specific advice, because we don't have the actual numbers, write into our site and then we'll do a reader case study on him because that's what we do on our site. Christy, anything you want to add to that? So basically my advice is to not follow the fear of missing out sentiment. All the real estate agents pushing houses at you, your friends saying you're, you're going to miss out on this, all this gain. You need to really just decide for yourself because when you make emotional decisions, you have to live with that for the rest of your life. Whereas a lot of the times when other people are pushing really, really hard for you to do something, it's really for their own interest. They, they have either they are really afraid that their house is going to go down and they need to be part of this big bubble and they need everybody to be on board. There's usually some kind of reason why they're doing that. So I would say don't fall into the FOMO mindset and make your decisions based on numbers, not based on emotions. I think that's so fascinating, in particular with regards to the idea of everybody is trying to sell you something. What, what is so compelling to me about our FI community and the different bloggers that we referenced in this podcast uh, and that you guys uh, you know, obviously have great connections with on your site as well as 
we don't have anything to sell you. We're just, we're just saying, Hey, the water's great over here. We're having a great time. Come join us. Your life will be better. And I I think that to me, that is something that initially I kept looking for the weak spot. I'm a very skeptical person. And when I heard this idea that you can retire early, I was thinking, what's the, what's the trick to this? You know, and there just isn't one. It's just the math works for you. Yep. We just want, we, we just want other people to be just as happy as we are. That's our motivation because when you don't care about money anymore, like you don't have to go out and sell stuff that you don't believe in because uh, mm-hmm. I don't care. I don't need any more money. And the, to that point, this is why we keep getting on a daily basis all sorts of offers for sponsored posts, basic credit agencies trying to get people into more debt. We say no to all those offers. It doesn't matter how much money they offer us because that's not once you have enough, that is not what drives you anymore. What, what drives you is how can I give back and how can I help other people rather than my own naked interest of making money or my own naked interest of keeping my the value of my home up or my portfolio. None of that stuff matters. And that's why I think the FI community, it's so easy for us to get along with each other because we really don't want anything from each other. You really know that people are just there to be authentic and to have your best interest at heart rather than just pushing things at you because they need a commission. All right, guys. Well, this was a lot of fun. We actually did cover a lot of ground. I'm very excited about how this came together. But before we let you go, we want to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? Yep, let's do it. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right. We'll start with question number one for both of you. Your favorite blog that's not your own? J.L. Collins. Definitely J.L. Collins because out of all the bloggers, he's the one that gives you a step-to-step breakdown of how to invest and actually get to FI. I read a lot of blogs from other people, which is great in explaining how to be motivated and how to save and all this stuff. But the really... um, the. J.L. Collins has the way has this way of breaking down investment advice that's easy for you to digest and is very practical. So I would say J.L. Collins. Yeah, same. Uh, when we met up in Chautauqua, we, we got along famously for exactly that reason. He He's one of the people that actually breaks down the investment side of it and, and tells you step by step how to actually do it. Because there's so many uh, financial advisors out there that really don't have your best interests at heart trying to sell you things that really just make them commission rather than teach you how to invest. And Jim just cuts through all, basically cuts through, excuse my language, but just cuts through all the bullshit. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's valuable to point out how much you appreciate and like what Jim's doing, but aren't necessarily doing the exact same thing as him with regards to maybe your allocation, with regards to maybe the specific fund you're in. And I think that's a valuable point to people that what Jim laid out for us was this simple path to wealth, this kind of framework approach, your baseline of investment. And and I found that incredibly valuable. It has de-stressed my life in a very tangible way. And you don't need to agree with him on 100% of exactly what he's doing to still benefit from the framework. The other half of that is, I appreciated what you were saying about financial advisors. And I think it's very interesting because I believe you guys actually either do use 
use a financial advisor or have used a financial advisor. And I'm curious about your perspective on that. Yeah. So our financial advisor is actually independent. So he's not actually working for any of the big banks. And the reason why we chose him is he has a similar philosophy to to Jim's, which is he wants to like he he basically advocates for index funds, which is unheard of when it comes to financial advisors. He doesn't need the money. So he's independently wealthy. He's basically FI. So he he's not working for the banks and actually pushing product. And the first time we met him, he actually called us idiots, which is perfect because I'm very skeptical whenever someone's like, oh, you're a genius and we could do all sorts of these tricks for you and get you 20% returns. And I just do not trust any of those snakes, snake oil salesmen. So with our advisor, he actually told us because originally we were trying to do dividend investing. We were trying to just focus on the returns on the dividends and not focus on allocation and not thinking about indexing at the time. Because right then, I think we were trying to copy a Derek Foster's method of flat out index investing. So he actually picked out a lot of holes in what we what we were understanding and our strategy. So that helped a lot. Yeah. So the short answer is uh, his, his name is Garth Turner. He's also a blogger. He runs a blog called Greater Fool. He's also financially independent. It certainly would not seem to be a great plan to to rely heavily on a financial advisor that was paycheck to paycheck. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. The industry is rampant with conflicts of interest. So we we use him uh, because he also gives us like a tax advice. He's also published author. So he helped. He gave us advice on how to publish our first book. He's also so that's why we did it. But the the methods that he uses are just the same that everyone else, all the other FI bloggers talk about, which is index investing. If he wasn't there, we would have we would have we would be just as fine without him. Historically, I have always separated out certified financial planners from the FI community as kind of being at odds with each other. I've actually, as we've been doing this more and more, become aware of financial planners that are within the FI community. And and I think there is room for those two to coexist and in fact, really benefit. But I think what they're making money off of has to be different. Clearly, in my mind, charging for assets under management doesn't fly in my mind. I I could never see myself recommending that. But on the flip side of that, I will pay for information, information that can actually increase or supercharge my path to fight. That's extraordinarily valuable. So in that light, there does open up a door for this idea of a fee-only planner and specifically a fee-only planner that wears a bunch of different hats that can help mentor you down this road. And so we've started to make some great connections over the last six or seven months. And I'm excited to see where that goes because the place that many of us start is you don't know what you don't know until you do. And and clearly, if you can align yourself with the right person, that there is room. I appreciated seeing that you guys recognize that there is information that you don't have and that there yep. is a person that can help guide you to that information. And I'm sure that the model that you guys are using is one that's mutually beneficial for both of you. Yeah, absolutely. But the the danger about when people say, oh, use a financial advisor or any other robo advisor or well, you know, these kinds of companies, when people say, uh, should I use it too? And what they're actually asking behind the scenes is, if I just go with this guy, does that mean I can stop learning all this kind of stuff? And that's the absolute worst way to use either a financial advisor or robo advisor or this kind of stuff. If you just outsource your knowledge to somebody else, then that somebody else can screw you. But so when I say, so when someone asks me that question, I keep, I keep telling them that's not the right question to ask. What you should be doing is learning how to do all this kind of stuff yourself. It, like figure out how to build a, a low cost index portfolio, figure out how to create an asset allocation that works for you, figure out how to rebalance it and do all this kind of stuff yourself. When you can actually do that, maybe then seek out a financial advisor or robo advisor that then adds an, an additional layer of value. But if you just kind of go, can when can I turn my brain off? Can I just go sign up with this advisor? Then you're going to be in trouble because nobody cares more about your money than you do. So yeah, that's kind of where I approach that, those kinds of questions. And this also speaks to not being doctrinaire about anything. 
I think that's what Jonathan and I try to be open-minded here. And, you know, you just talked about hiring a financial planner, right? Like that's something that while is generally looked down upon in the, the FI world, you just made a compelling case for someone adding value to your life. And of course you're going to pay money for that, right? Like I'm, I'm a CPA, so I theoretically should know accounting and tax, but it's a huge industry and there are certainly holes in my knowledge. So I'm actually personally hiring Keith from The Wealthy Accountant to help me with some consulting issues because he can add value to my life and save money. So, I mean, that's something that I'm not embarrassed about one iota because I'm learning in the process and I'm helping become wealthier and get to fi quicker because of spending that money. So to me, that's an absolute no brainer. Absolutely. And sometimes it's all about having somebody who's there to guide you and having that support as well. Because some people, the worst thing you could do is just sell when there's a market crash, just freak out and sell everything, right? And some people, they know how everything works, but they would like that person to kind of talk them off the cliff and be like, okay, this is why I shouldn't sell at the bottom of the trough. And this is a long-term game. And I, you know, I need to get into that mindset. So sometimes it's helpful to have someone who actually has your back and someone who isn't trying to screw you by selling you all these bad products to just make you understand during that time, because it is really scary and nobody will really understand how they will react when there's a market crash for someone to talk you off that ledge. Question number two, your favorite article of all time, and this can be one that you wrote or somebody else's. I'm going to have to go with JL Collins again. Why your house is a terrible investment. And I don't think I have to explain why I love that article. (laughs) It's just like when I read that, I was like, okay, this is like, he's my spirit animal, clearly. Like, we're extremely aligned on everything in this article. And I love how the comments, I think it generated over 200 comments and just had so much discussion over people who came on the the blog and just started arguing about how that's absolutely not true and pride of ownership and ba da ba da and things that have nothing to do with math. It, it was just extremely entertaining to read. How about you, Bryce? I mean, like, that, that kind of inspired the kind of thinking that we had towards the site, and then when we launched this, the funny thing is we, we became friends with Jim because he saw the video that's on the top of our site where Christy is in front of a camera and basically yelling at boomers. And the funny thing is Jim's a boomer. So I figured, <laughs> so he wrote back to us and he's like, ha ha, this is awesome. And then let's, let's talk. And then we started like Skyping with each other, like regularly and this kind of stuff. And I'm just kind of like, wait a minute, didn't we spend that entire video yelling at you? <laughs> and then he was like, yeah, but you were yelling at us. You were yelling at me for the right reason. <laughs> so at that point, I knew we would be best Yeah, friends. we'd be BFFs. <laughs> All right, guys, question number three, your favorite life hack. Okay, so favorite life hack actually comes from one of Bryce's ex-coworkers. So the life hack is the past doesn't matter. What do we do now? And this coworker of his actually came from a war-torn zone. He lived there growing up. And basically the advice was when something really bad happens, like when you have no time to actually think about what's happening because people are dying and there's war, all you can do is just pick up a bucket of water and just put out the fire and do what it is that needs to be done to help at that point. You can't be blaming people. You can't be pointing fingers. You can't be like what reflecting what about what happened because at that moment, you just need to do something. You need to realize what it is that you need to do. And this became really useful advice at work because whenever people started pointing fingers at each other, which inevitably happens whenever there's a software release, something would go wrong. And then the QA team would blame the developers. Developers would blame the business analysts. They would blame the project managers. And it would just be a huge mess. But then when in the midst of all this blame, you're not actually doing anything 
anything to solve the problem. So I found this to be the best piece of life advice I've ever heard because anytime that we run into an issue, for example, like when we have a problem with the flights or we're, when we have a problem with accommodation, there's no finger pointing. There's no, oh, you should have taken care of that. And why did we not look at another place to stay? And why did we mess up on the flight? It didn't matter. At that point, it was just like, stop. We don't care what happened in the past. What do we do now? And I find that this this advice is actually really useful in terms of for FI and for finance as well, because everybody has made financial mistakes in the past. Everyone. We're all human. We all made mistakes. Nobody is perfect. But the thing is, you need to forgive yourself and move on. Instead of dwelling on what happened in the past, just figure out what you need to do to fix your finances now. The past doesn't matter. What do we do now to fix it? And it really has been life changing because every time we run into an issue, we use this advice. Doesn't matter whose fault it is. What do we do now? Yeah, I mean, like people when they said, you know, the two of us are going to be traveling all over the place and this kind of stuff. It's like, oh, you two are going to kill each other. You two are going to fight. And it's like, we never, ever do because we just do that. Anything, anytime goes wrong, it's like, doesn't matter. What do we do now? It really comes in handy when, for example, we do reader cases for people or when people show us their numbers and show us their finances. A lot of the times there's embarrassment, there's shame involved. And there's like, I shouldn't have done this and I shouldn't have done that. And the first thing I do is it doesn't matter. Just pretend that the person who made mistakes in the past was a different person and that person's gone now. What do we do now? And then, and then that just resets the conversation. And then it kind of go, oh, okay, well, I guess, why don't we try this? And why don't we try that? Rather than they would just either not want to show us their numbers or just be hung up on past mistakes. Like, oh, I shouldn't have gotten to this much debt and this kind of stuff. So yeah, it's just stop what you're doing. The past doesn't matter. Just move forward. All right. Question number four, your biggest financial mistake. Okay. So I've actually written a, a post about this. It's called Confessions of a former purse addict. <laughs> and people are quite surprised when they read this article. They're like, really? You? So back in 2010, after we got married, I started having this obsession about coach purses. And that was when I was in my buying phase where I was getting this basically hit of dopamine to my brain by buying these purses and researching them online and things like that. Fortunately, a lot of them were actually returnable. So I think I, I got up to my fifth purse. And then at that point, I was just like, wait, why am I why am I doing this? Like, this is not I don't need all this stuff. Like, it's the consuming part of me that's taking over rather than the creating part, because at the time I was trying to write a children's novel. So I at that point, I kind of snapped out of it. And then I went back to writing. But that basically just shows that anybody can be susceptible to all this marketing, like all the marketing on the internet, and basically your friends trying to, to show you that you're you're missing out on this great thing. So I would consider that probably my biggest financial mistake. But luckily, it didn't really do that much to my budget because I just returned a lot of the purses. It also strikes me that the flip side of that is even cooler. And it's how quickly your interest can be changed. And if you can get that dopamine fix from maxing out your 401ks or from just firing on all your five cylinders, you can get dopamine from things that actually advance your financial future, you know, in a really, exactly. really cool way. Exactly. And that, that's the thing. When you're actually creating, you end up having this like it, it's this energy that and happiness that keeps going versus when you're consuming it. It's very short. It's a short fuse. All of a sudden it's gone and then you have to get more. Right. So that's what I discovered back then, that it was a lot better to create than consume. Bryce, anything to add to that? No, I mean, like, yeah, her, that, that's why I wanted to start her because her story is more more interesting. But for <laughs> me, for me, it just I, I would honestly just kind of go. I didn't really like just out of kind of coincidence. I didn't really step in it too badly. The only thing I would really change is maybe actually go a hundred like with with a higher equity allocation back then and uh, in in 2008 because I would have it would have bounced back a lot higher. But that's you can't complain too much after not losing any money in 2008. So I don't I don't have any too many things I regret from that period. No, don't be embarrassed. Brad and I are making a wall of fame of the few people that have been able to successfully say I don't think I really made any financial mistakes. It's a short list, man. You're on it. <laughs> cool. Yeah, we're up to a couple now. Very, very nice. So, all right. Uh, question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. 
I think uh, I, I think it's okay to make mistakes, especially when it comes to starting and investing. They get really scared and they go through this kind of analysis paralysis kind of thing. Where especially when you start investing, there's so much stuff going on. There's so many. Do I buy this mutual fund? Do I open up this this brokerage account? What do I put inside of a 401k or what do I put inside of a like a Roth IRA and this kind of stuff? And because there's so much complexity, seemingly complexity to investing. It makes people just kind of freeze up and say, I'm not going to deal with this now. Maybe I'm going to deal with this next year. And that's actually the exact wrong way to do it, because what you want to do is you want to get in there and try it. And you want to make mistakes early on in your career and when there's not a lot of money involved. And the the longer you kind of delay that figuring out how money works, the worse off shape that you that you get or your retirement gets delayed because you were doing things that it takes more time to compound. And and that just it hurts everyone. So it's just like, go ahead, try it out, make mistakes and then learn from them and then recover. And that's kind of what I would, I think I would tell my, my, my younger self. Nice guys. We do have a bonus question for you guys. Uh, your favorite purchase made on amazon.com last year, or if not Amazon, I guess, you know, an alternate third party, uh, online vendor. Honestly, probably our plane tickets to Chautauqua. Cause that was, uh, yeah, that was best spending so, ever. <laughs> that, that was the coolest thing I've ever been, uh, had a privilege of participating in as a speaker. And, uh, once we did that and we realized how much we enjoyed like actually just, you know, face to face helping people with their with, with their finances and, and this kind of stuff. We're just kind of like, oh, man, we got to do this more. All right. Well, maybe that'll be an opportunity for us to explore in the future, give you some more opportunities to do case studies on the Choose FI podcast, maybe in the future. Uh, but we're going to be seeing you guys soon, maybe at FinCon, right? Yep. And then I hear rumors that maybe you're going to be joining us at Camp Fi in Florida next year. Is that a possibility? Yeah, we're yep. still figuring out the logistics on that one, but definitely for FinCon. All right, guys. Uh, well, before we let you go, there's a ton of people that are for sure going to want to connect with you guys, not only to our Canadian audience uh, that is very interested in your take on their specific situation in the housing market, but just generally speaking, this reframing of the problem that you guys have tackled. And uh, what is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Um, so they can email me at firecracker.revolution at gmail.com or they can go to the website at www.millennial-revolution.com. The millennial has two ends, just in case. Some people spell it with one end. Yep. And we'll definitely link that up in the show notes. So don't worry about that. And yeah, we'd love to have everybody keep in touch with you. It's a wonderful blog. It's absolutely hilarious. So definitely check it out. Awesome. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for coming on, guys. And thank you for being a part of the Chooseify community. If you want to support us, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. If you want to do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to choosefi.com slash PC. P as in Paul, C as in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 38, The Why of FI, and right behind that, have them go listen to episode 21, The Pillars of FI. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.